exes come in all different shapes and sizes. The cheaters, the liars, the fallout of lovers. But what about those who become an ex because they're, well, not there anymore? The ones you've promised to love forever, planned a life with, married. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. I didn't choose to lose Todd. In an ideal world, I would be doing this with him, but the universe decided that wasn't my journey. I'm Georgia Love and this is Everyone Has an Ex. Come with me as we dive into a collection of unconventional stories about relationships past through the eyes and the hearts of the very people who lived them. To begin this story, I need to take you to the city of churches and the home of some of the world's finest wines, Adelaide. And in 2005, it was also the home of the V8 supercars Clipsal 500. Think Holden versus Ford, the smell of petrol in the air, empty tinnies scattered on the ground and grid girls roaming the track in lycra and high heels. The perfect romantic background for when Susie met Todd. So I'd come from Melbourne to Adelaide for work and his friend had won a competition with Cougar Bourbon for a trip to the Adelaide 500 and took Todd as one of his guests. I was working for CUB at the time, so it was part of our kind of activity for the weekend. I would pick them up for pit tours and driver meet and greets and that kind of thing and clocked him and thought that he was cute. I mean, he was there, you know, three firemen winning this trip. That was kind of fun. And he was cute and kind of looked like your stereotypical fireman. He was big and, you know, blonde. He was from Perth, so he had the the olive skin and was just pretty cute. Um, and But he didn't talk a lot and he was hard work. So the other guys were really enthusiastic about doing things, but he kind of didn't want to participate in stuff and was just a bit awkward and a bit shy. And so it wasn't really until the last night that everybody went out for drinks that I was chatting to him and he came up to the bar, which was a, um, a fully free bar put on by CUB and came up and offered to buy me a drink at the free bar (laughs) and that um, just started the conversation and I think my some of my first words to him were oh I thought you were mute lovely to hear that you can actually talk (laughs) anyway that just we barely stopped talking um, that night I think we parted ways at about 3 a.m. A tall blonde fireman at the Clipsal 500 could you get any more fairy tale? While their racy romance could have been short-lived, the next morning Todd flew back to his hometown of Perth and Susie to hers of Melbourne. That wouldn't make this a very good love story now, would it? It was one of those kind of just connections that you just can't get enough. You know, the next day I remember after he left he sent her that early that morning he sent a text about 10 minutes after he left and... You know, the next morning when I woke up, the first thing I did was send him another message and every time the phone pinged, it was that, you know, beautiful kind of initial exciting um, feeling. So, yeah, there was a lot of messaging back and forth, a lot of phone calls. Um, So, yeah, two weeks later I flew to Perth to meet him and we went down to Dunsborough for the weekend Um, and that kind of kicked off what was the next four years of long-distance relationships. 
Now, that's certainly not the ideal situation, least of all, for four years. But Todd's job as a firefighter meant he couldn't leave Western Australia, while Susie had a solid job across the other side of the country and was very close to her friends and family. But when you know, you know, and you make it work. Because he was a firefighter, he worked shifts, and so that gave him some flexibility um, in coming to Melbourne, sometimes during the week. And then I would fly there after work on a Friday and come back on the red eye on Sunday night, go home, shower and go straight to work. And that was kind of our drill. You know, we tried to not go longer than three weeks without seeing each other. The distance was tough. There was pressure to make the most of those precious days they were together and it was hard to settle into a relationship when you're spending so much time apart. Susie admits the struggles almost broke them a couple of times. You know, we just had that sort of relationship that it was difficult to let go. And I feel like there was a number of times through our relationship, albeit a moment in time where you're like, I don't know if we can get through this. Somehow we always found each other again. I just think he was so different to anybody that I'd dated before. And I was so different to what he had dated before. We just came from opposite sides of the world. You know, even the first time he met my family, he was just... He was literally silent for nearly all of dinner. And I remember my dad made a comment saying, I think that bloke's like socially inept. I don't even know if like, what is going on? And I said to him afterwards, what was going on? Like, why can't you show them what I see? Why were you so quiet? And he's like, I'm so in awe of the way your family interact over a dinner table. You know, like the way that you're, you know, you're laughing and you've all got so many stories to tell and it's just such a beautifully warm family environment. I felt totally out of my depth. And so we just came from different worlds. It just felt like the universe meant for us to be together, no matter the challenges. The connection from that very first night was never lost. Differences and distance aside, at the end of the day, they were in love. I think what I loved about him most is that I felt totally safe with him. You know, I could go to the middle of a war-torn country and if I had him by my side I would have absolute faith that we would be okay. When he was at work or when he was in a situation where he needed to make calls quickly, he was just beyond, like I've never seen anything like it. We were driving in Perth one night and we were going past a pub and a guy who had been drinking, he was quite drunk, stepped off the side of the road right in front of the car in front of us and the car hit him. And I just remember gasping and Todd just pulled the car over, like got out of the car as if he was just parking it, you know, to go and get a loaf of bread. Walked over, the woman in the car in front, he's like, okay, if you can just pull your car over there, then I'm going to need you to come back over here. Went to the guy on the road, his shoes were like scattered. He's like getting people involved. Can you just go there and just make sure that traffic goes that way? Come on, mate, let's have a look at you. Gets the guy into the right position to make sure that he's safe. Can you just call the ambulance? I just stood there absolutely useless myself watching this guy just totally curate this situation on a highway and that was just him he just um you know he was just the sort of person who I felt entirely safe with and he was just had incredible street smarts and you know I just remember thinking he just he can tackle any sort of situation like this I will always be safe as long as he's here. So what would get one of them to make the call to finally be together? 
was a Saturday morning. We were just lying in bed. And I just got up to go to the loo and came back and I said, come on, baby, you should get up. He's like, oh, just come back. Come back for a five-minute cuddle. So I came back in, got back into bed, and then he just kind of rolled onto his side and presented a ring box and he just said, so what do you reckon? Do you think we should get married? And that was, that was it. He bought this beautiful ring that he 100% couldn't afford and he'd bought it from a shop in Albert Park, this jeweller that probably charged... more than any other buddy jeweller because they're in Albert Park. But I'd walked past the shop and looked in the window and said something about one of the rings. So he would have thought, I need, you know, I need to get her the ring that she loves. So God love him. So Susie moved to Perth. Ultimately, their love won out and they knew wherever they were, whatever jobs they were in or whoever they were surrounded by, they would only really be truly happy if they were together. We got married um, in some gardens in Brighton and then had our reception upstairs at the Brighton Baths, which was really beautiful. Um, And it was just a good, fun night. It was reflective of us. His mum and dad were there and their partners. Uh, His station officer from work was his best man. Um, And that was... I'd built up some really nice friendships with his um, work colleagues' wives, um, as well as some of my colleagues that I was working with in Perth so I had a really nice base there as well which was lovely to have them in Melbourne in my environment. Um, yeah it was really lovely so we did that and when we stayed in um, Melbourne for Christmas we got married on the 18th of December so we just stayed here for Christmas and then headed back to Perth in Jan. We went to our honeymoon on the 15th of March which was Gorgeous. Had the first half in Vietnam, which was like a school excursion. He had us up at 7am every morning doing tours out to, you know, relevant war sites and that kind of thing. And so then uh, we went to Koh Lanta for our honeymoon, which was for the second half of the honeymoon, which was for me the wind down part and just the really beautiful romantic part of the trip. Life had finally come together for Susie and Todd. At 30 and 36, after four years of long distance, it had all been worth it. It was funny. I mean, I, you know, you often hear people when they get married, um, you hear people say to them, oh, does it feel different being married? And funnily, I always thought that was such a ridiculous question because what's changed essentially? But it did. It felt really different. And I think from both of our perspectives, I think the things that um, challenged Todd about my independence and... Um, You know, I think he took my independence for kind of being half in. And I think by being married, it gave him the confidence that I was 100% in. I just needed my time to do things with friends and that that kind of thing. So I think it gave him a, a sense of confidence in our relationship that maybe hadn't been there before. And probably the same for me. I just felt like we were we were on a really good path. Just felt I just felt totally at peace with the relationship, totally at peace with being in Perth. It just felt like everything had just, was just where it should be. Life started to settle into normal. They'd now been married four months, both had great jobs and were excited to look to the future. They'd even started talking about the pitter-patter of little feet. Life was truly wonderful. So when they woke up on what should have been any other Saturday in April 2011, one week after returning from their honeymoon, no one could have anticipated that everything was about to change. 
we just got back and he'd, um, he was heading to his second shift back at work. So it was Saturday of Easter weekend. Um, so he'd leave at about six o'clock. I headed to the gym um, and we had a conversation. I got to the gym for a class that had been rescheduled because of Easter weekend. So I'm on the phone to him. I'm like, this is shit. I've come to the gym. It's not, class isn't even on. He's like, oh, stop whinging about it. Get on the treadmill or something. And so I think my last comment was like, you're annoying me. I'm getting off the phone. He was like, okay, see ya. I'm off to the gym too. See ya. Hung up the phone, got on the treadmill and one of my girlfriends called from Melbourne. So I think I was on the treadmill talking to her for about 20 minutes and then thought, I'm going home. I'm not working out here. So I kept chatting to her um, and I got home and my phone was still on silent and I was in our front room um, of the house and we had stained glass windows and I saw a figure walk past the stained glass windows and I could tell from what I could see that it was a fire brigade uniform and I was like, well, that's not Todd because I could tell it wasn't his shape and his height and went to the door um, and this gentleman introduced himself to me. I have no idea what his name was but he was one of the senior people in the fire brigade in WA um, and he told me that there'd been an incident on station with Todd and that I needed to come with him. And I didn't think for a second that it was, clearly it was serious, but I didn't think for a second it was any more serious than similar to before we'd gone on our honeymoon. He'd come home early from a night shift because he'd pulled himself into an upturned car through the window without his helmet on and he'd got some glass in his eye um, and had gone to the hospital to get it out and then had come home. So I was thinking he's done something else stupid that he shouldn't have been doing and he's not had his helmet on or something. So I got in the car with this guy. It was Easter Saturday, so traffic was revolting and we got onto the, the highway quite quickly and it was chockers and he put his sirens on and I thought, that's a bit odd. And he said, I'm just putting the sirens on so we can try to get through this traffic. He said, by the way, Paul has been trying to call you. And Paul was Todd's station officer, who was the best man in our wedding. And I looked at my phone, which had been on silent and had about 15 missed calls from Paul. So I called him back and I said, "What's Paul, what's going on? And he said, oh, Suze, we think Todd's had a heart attack. And he said, I'm still at the station. Um, I'm trying to get another shift here to relieve us. The other two boys have gone with Todd in the ambulance. Um, you need to come to the hospital. So I was like, I'm on, the, I'm on the way. About five minutes later, he called me back. He said, Suze, I think you need to call Todd's parents. And in that moment, I thought, this is really serious for them to want his parents there. So I called his dad and his dad was quite kind of calm. I said, they think that Todd's had a heart attack on station, you need to get to the hospital. And then I called his mum and his mum burst into tears and that panicked me a little bit. Um, and it's an hour and a half drive, so it just felt like an eternity. Um, and so I hung up from her, kept trying to ask this guy questions, what, like, what, do, you, what do you think has happened, how did this happen? He didn't know anything. Um, and then his phone rang on loudspeaker and it was some other fire person that I didn't know and they said, how far away are you guys? And he said, we're about 15 minutes away. And he said, okay, well, when you get here, we're in a room off the emergency 
department. So call me when you're here so I can bring Susie through. And all of these things were absolutely building on my anxiety. I felt furious at him because I thought he's he's pushed himself too hard again and now this has happened. Like just stop for a second, just stop for a second. So we pulled up at the hospital, whoever it was, met us outside and took us into a room and I walked into the room and the, his his um, shift were all in the room and his station officer's wife, who I'd become quite friendly with, and his brother was there with his girlfriend at the time, now wife, and she walked over to me and hugged me and started crying and said, I'm so sorry, Susie. And I was just thinking, what... I what what is going on? I have no idea what's going on. I just looked at Paul and I said, Paul, what's going on? And he said, Sue's just, hold up a minute, the doctor is coming in. And I was like, okay, okay, and he, where is he, where is he? He said, he's doing a resus. And I thought, oh, my God, he's doing a resus on Todd. So I'm panicking and I'm like, what do you mean, what do you mean, what do you mean? Like just in a panic trying to work out where there's doors to this room and how I can get out to wherever Todd is. And Paul just stepped, I just remember them all kind of exchanging looks and Paul stepped over and hugged me and just said into my ear, he's gone, Susie. And I was like, what do you mean? You just told me he was doing a resus on him. How can you How can you possibly know that? And he said he's not doing a resus on Todd, Susie. He's on another patient. Todd's already gone. And I just pushed past him and pushed out the back door that was behind them and just lurched out into emergency. And thank God there was a nurse standing there. And she said, Susie, and I said, yeah. She said, do you want to see him? And I said, yes. And so she just took me in to one of the areas and he was lying there and I just remember going over and just holding him, saying, Todd, they're telling me that you're dead. Just wake up. This is ridiculous. They're telling me that you're dead. And it just kind of all sunk in that... That was, he was gone. The doctor came in, a really beautiful doctor. He had tears in his eyes too and he just said, um, Mrs Lennington, and I said, yeah. He said, I'm so sorry. We did everything that we could do. Um, and as it turns out, you know, there's such a great bond between those emergency services and when he... Um, when it happened at the station. So he was in the gym apparently doing CrossFit and um, two of the boys had left and Paul and Todd had decided to do another circuit and Todd laid down to do push-ups and Paul turned around and um, said, what are you, what are you, Todd, what are you doing? He had a really strange look on his face and he realised immediately that something was wrong and so he... Um, Called, yelled out to the boys to come back up and they performed CPR, called the ambulance. Um, five ambulance units turned out. I think they worked on him there for about 40 minutes before they took him to the hospital. So I think probably when they finally moved him, he was probably already gone. Um, and we later discovered that he had heart disease that we were totally unaware of and one side of his heart was 60% blocked, the other was 90% blocked. And because his heart was so strong, it just kept pumping blood through these tiny little gaps. And that morning a clot hit one of the sides and he was just gone. There's so many parts 
of that day that I don't remember. You know, I think I got to the hospital at 10am and I think I left at 5.36. But one of the things that I remember is not wanting to leave him um, because I knew that he didn't like being by himself. And I had this, you know, just this urge to not leave him. And I think probably at three o'clock, nurses started to come in and say, we need to take him. And sometimes I'd answer them and sometimes I wouldn't. And if I answered them, I'd say, I'm not ready to leave yet. And they'd just kind of leave. Or other times I'd just sort of have my head on his chest and I just wouldn't even respond to them. And then I remember um, the doctor came in and said, Susie, we really need you to leave. We need to take Todd now. And I just said, I can't, I can't leave him. He doesn't like being by himself. I cannot leave him. So he left and then the fire brigade chaplain came in and I had never met him before. Ron, his name was. And he said, Susie, you have, you know, you have to go. And I said, I can't. And he said to me, he's not there anymore, Susie. It's not, that's not Todd that you're sitting with anymore. And he said, where he's gone, he's happy. And I said, he's not happy. How could he be happy? There's no way that he could be happy. And he said, I know that's how you feel, but believe me, when I say that where he's gone is where ultimately we will all end up. And he's one of the lucky ones because he's got to go early. The rest of us have to see out a lifetime before we get to go there. And he said, and where he's gone, it's timeless. So you're sitting here thinking about him every second, every minute, but where he's gone, time doesn't exist. So just in a moment, he will turn around and you will be there. And he'll be like, Suze, I've got something to show you. And it was just such a beautiful, um, I just needed something. I needed to know something about where he'd gone. I needed something to believe in because I, I physically couldn't leave his side for fear that I couldn't look after him anymore. And so I think in that moment, I just felt like he's, he's okay. I'd called my parents who were in Marimbula, so they had to get back from Marimbula to Melbourne to fly to Perth. Um, I had called my brother, him and his wife got straight on a flight, got their kids looked after and got straight on a flight. So I had my best girlfriends arrive probably a day later. Um, there were people there all the time, I know. I remember mum trying to get me to eat and I remember not wanting to eat. I spent a lot of time in Todd's hammock out on the back deck um, you know, I just, I don't know, it was all a bit of a blur. I think I was just in shock. We couldn't have his funeral until the 4th of May. Um, so like, longer than a week after he passed away. Um, the fire brigade were my lifeline at that point. They were such an incredible group of people. There were fire trucks pulling up outside my house from shifts that I had, you know, that Todd hadn't worked on, to mow the lawns, to clean out the gutters. Um, they offered free counselling. Um, 
they offered financial assistance with the funeral. They were just amazing. And then the funeral itself was just like something that you've seen on TV. It was really quite overwhelming. So I was sitting in the car um, and the in the hearse and the coffin was in the back. I remember pulling in to the crematorium and I just went, holy shit, honey. I remember thinking, who is on shift at the fire stations in WA today? Like, I think everybody who wasn't on shift was at this funeral. There was a guard of honour. It was just the most incredible thing that I think I've ever seen. And um, Todd was the first firefighter to pass away on shift um, for 30 years or something like that. So it was a really significant um, moment in time for the fire brigade, but it was just such a beautiful celebration um, of him. I've never felt so, I knew how incredible he was at his job, but I've never felt so proud of um, who he was and what he did every day um, in that moment. Less than three weeks earlier, Susie and Todd had stepped off the plane from their honeymoon. Now, at 30 years old, Susie was a widow. It was really fucking hard. You know, a funeral happens and then everybody goes back to their normal lives. And I was 30. You know, my, everybody was back in Melbourne. I was still in Perth. My girlfriend didn't know what to do. Um... You know, like there was just, it just felt, and more so because I was in Perth, but it kind of just felt like everybody went back to their normal life and my world was totally upended. I don't know how many nights I got home and didn't turn on a light and was probably just sitting somewhere in the dark for I don't know how long. And it was just a process. Every morning I'd wake up and I'd say, get out of bed. You just got to get out of bed. And then you just need to get into the shower And it was like one step by one step. And then I remember this fear setting in. I was probably, I probably indulged it, um, indulged that grief to its full extent for about a month where I just never answered the phone, um, you know, sat in the dark, kind of that really (laughs) predictable kind of deep grief. And then I remember just having this moment of fear and I thought, shit, I'm 30 and this moment is going to define me for the rest of my life. And I was petrified by that thought. Like I was petrified by that being my story forever. And then in that moment I thought I am going to feel this and I'm going to feel every bit of this so that I can come out the other side and be somewhat normal, whatever that means now. But I can't, I can't have this define me. I can't have my entire life story be your husband died when you were 30 after three months, four months of marriage. Over the next 12 months, Susie worked hard at mending her head and her heart. She moved back to Melbourne to escape the constant reminders and memories of Todd, but things just didn't feel right. I had hoped that coming back to Melbourne would give me a new start And actually I came back and I just felt like I didn't fit in anymore and I felt like I'd left Todd and abandoned everything that was his life 
to come back to Melbourne and nothing looked familiar anymore. It was at that point Susie found a new counsellor. So I started seeing a counsellor um, really frequently. Um, I worked really hard to process the relationship. Um, I was really afraid that I would never, that no one would ever live up to Todd again. Um, and so I, I was really conscious that I wanted to remember Todd, but every bit of Todd, so the shit stuff as well. I don't think it's dramatic to say she probably saved my life. And she said, well, describe to me where you're at. And I said, um, I, I don't recognise where I am anymore and it feels like there's been a massive explosion and there's just rubble everywhere and I'm up to my shoulders and I can't move. I can't move my legs. I can't move my arms. There's nobody around that I can call out to for help. And I remember her saying to me, okay, well, week by week we're just going to move some of that rubble and we're going to get you out of there. And she was just, she was amazing and hard on me when she needed to be hard on me but was constantly reminding myself to be kind to myself um, because I so desperately wanted to be better and I so desperately wanted to kind of start to move forwards, but it's this constant turmoil of, no, I'm feeling good, I'm feeling good. That was really funny. Oh, shit, my husband's dead. Like, that's not funny. Nothing like that shouldn't be. Why are you laughing? You know, it was that that constant struggle for probably a year and a half of feeling like, you know, recognising that there's days that it's not the first thing that you think of. It's the third or the fourth, but it's not the first thing. And feeling really empowered by that and then feeling really guilty about that. 18 months after Todd's death, Susie's grief didn't end, but it began to manifest in different ways, especially given there was more devastating news to process. After that year and a half, I kind of went off the rails. So three months after Todd passed away, my dad was diagnosed with melanoma cancer and given three months to live. So I was thinking, I'm going to lose my dad and my husband in the same year. Luckily, we ended up getting another two years with dad. But I think for that year and a half, it was the grief of Todd, the the palpable fear of having to grieve my dad and not thinking that I can grieve somebody again and come out of it alive. You know, they talk about those stages of change and, you know, there's anger and rejection and then acceptance and whatever they are. And I definitely transitioned from a point of, like, grief into a point of anger and I just felt like, fuck you for leaving. You didn't even hang on long enough for me to see you in the hospital, for me to say goodbye. And now I've been left to deal with all of this shit. My dad's sick. I haven't got you to be by my side while I deal with this. So I was just really angry and I just went out a lot. I went overseas and just spent money on whatever I wanted to spend money on. There was just absolutely no regard for anything in the future. It was almost like I was just going to do everything across this period of time. I actually didn't give a shit what was coming in the future because I actually didn't have a lot of hope for what was coming in the future. You know, I felt like Almost my moment in the sun had passed and now I was just surviving to the point where I could die to just be with Todd. You know, that was the first time I was with somebody else. Um, I picked the most 
inappropriate person that I could possibly pick um, who I knew Todd would be like, what the fuck are you doing? I loaned him money, like whatever money I had, I loaned it to him for his business with a kind of half-baked contract to have it paid back. Um, I just did everything that my original self would never have done um, and all of it with the conscious thought that it would really piss Todd off. But Todd wasn't pissed off. No, not because he wasn't there anymore. She knew he wasn't. You see, Susie's friend Kate had received an interesting call from her friend Chris, who happened to be a medium. Kate called me out of the blue. She's like, hey, Chris um, has said that Todd has been coming to him and he has a message for you. And he didn't want to call you because he knows that you might be at a point where you don't want it, you're ready to move on. But if you're interested in hearing from him, he, he's happy to see you. So, of course, I said, of course. So he came around that weekend and, you know, he was like, oh, Todd, calm down. It's like he's like an excited puppy, which was very Todd. Like Todd would be like up and about and be like, oh, hey, hey, and get really excited about things. He's like, mate, and you need to calm down. I can't understand what, you, like, what you're trying to communicate. He's like, it's just this really high energy and it's hard to decipher what he's wanting to communicate. So then he said a few things. I'm really proud of you. Blah, 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 you've done this, you've done that. And he said, oh, he's not saying specifically what he's referring to, but he's saying you're not to feel guilty. He's not telling me about what, but he's saying you're not to feel guilty. So then he said to me, um, he stopped communicating with me, but his energy is still quite high. He said it's almost like a battery on a phone and you can see it going down when they're finished, but his levels are quite high. So he said, I feel like he's just going to probably stay around for a little while, but he's not communicating anything with me anymore. So he left and I was in my apartment in Elwood and I felt really uncomfortable. I felt almost like this heavy weight on me. I felt really uncomfortable. So I grabbed my keys and my bag and I walked out of the apartment and I went down into the basement to get into my car got into my car and was driving it up the ramp to go out and was waiting for the gate to open and I looked over and I could almost see him sitting in the passenger seat and he had this kind of like this smirk on his face and he had his like elbow cocked up and it was almost like he was saying oh where are we going like you think that I'm not going to come with you out of the like you think you're going to shake me and I just it was just such a beautiful feeling and I drove around for about half an hour and then it just went and I just turned around and I drove home. And that was the only time that I've physically felt him and almost could visualise him in his entirety just sitting there in the passenger seat next to me and it was just, it was incredible. With a renewed sense of peace and purpose, Susie started to turn a corner. I knew what was going to happen with Dad and I knew that... um, I wanted to be there for him and I wanted to be there for my family. Um, and I was scared. You know, I was really scared that actually, um, like it was just, it was it was a moment where I just had to reflect and work out what was important and work out what I needed to do to equip myself to get through this next stage, which I, w- I, I think I would have said at that point, uh, I like there is a 50% chance that I won't be around for much longer than Dad. Like if I, if if Dad's death takes me into the hole that Todd's death took me, I won't come out of that 
a second time. It's too deep and it's too dark. Um, so, yeah, I think that just kind of straightened me out. I think it was just starting to um, have a healthier approach. You know, I had to... I, I took the leap with dating again and I did it... Um, I think I did that in, like, it was a different world, right? Suddenly you've got online dating and so you can kind of... It's good in a way because you can start to put your foot back in the water without actually having to have a conversation with anybody. It was a really easy way back in. I had some really lovely relationships, um, you know, anywhere up to kind of six months over the following years. Um, and and learnt that I could feel again and that I could commit to a relationship again and, um, and I guess realised that I wasn't going to carry that grief into my future relationships, um, which had been a fear for me. Todd and I had been trying to have kids, so um, six months before we got married, we actively started trying to have kids. And obviously that didn't happen for us, but in my mind that's, that's where I was at, you know, like that's what I was ready for in my life. That's what I thought I was preparing for. The thing was, finding someone who fits Susie's criteria was proving pretty difficult. Like I was almost approaching it as if it was a bit of a you know, business venture. Immediately it was like the scan, <laughs> the scan of them, like age, um, you know, security in terms of, you know, financial security, emotional security. Are they ready to have children? Do they already have children? And I just feel like there were probably a number of really lovely guys that I dated who I just got rid of because I didn't feel like they were going to be the father of my child when really I don't think anybody at that point would have fit the bill because I think what my what my image and what my vision of that was had been with Todd but ultimately for me I got to the point where the child thing became bigger than the dating thing um, and so I made a decision to have a baby by myself um, because that for me at that time my rationale was I don't I don't believe I'm going to die alone I think that I will meet somebody and I think that I will end up having a great relationship with somebody but I just didn't have faith that that would happen for me um, in time to have a baby uh, and that was important to me. I just couldn't see what my purpose was if I didn't have a baby. That was just, for me, that was the, the driving force. I always thought that I was going to be a mum um, and so I, yeah, so that kind of became the focus in 2015. Um, I made that decision so I kind of stepped away from dating for a little while in order to make that happen. So after careful consideration and with the full support of her family and friends, Susie made the decision to try IVF. I just got lucky. The first, uh, I picked my anonymous donor and um, first embryo that we transferred took and little Teddy came about. It was emotional because I think in those moments it becomes really obvious that you're doing it alone and it's not the way it's meant to be. Um, but I think I had already reconciled that in my head and I think I was empowered by the situation. I kind of, you know, got this 
false sense of power, like you can do this. You know, this is, and I remember every time I'd tell somebody and they'd kind of be a bit surprised by it, I kind of liked that. I was like, yeah, you know, I'm just breaking the mould, let's do this. And I felt like there had been so much that had happened that I had been totally not in control of. And this was a moment that I was taking control back. I didn't choose to lose Todd. In an ideal world, I would be doing this with him, but the universe decided that wasn't my journey and I can control this. And I'm dictating to the universe that this part is my journey and this is how it's gonna look. And so I found that really empowering. In these recent years, or you know, in the last 10 years, life has taken such an incredible deviation from where I thought it would go. And at times I felt utterly lost and like I would never find that path again. But actually now I realise that was the path I always had to walk to get to where I am now, where I need to be, and that's to be a mum to Ted. Um, and so it is just really now, and I'm not, I'm not going to lie and say that there's not moments where I think, fuck, you know, why did, why did that all have to happen to me? You know, I wish beyond anything that Todd could still be here. But I also just feel grateful and I guess I just have faith in the process. And I'm at a point now where I have a three-and-a-half-year-old who's just, you know, who's this absolute beautiful spirit who I'm raising in a way that I think Todd would be really proud of and so I feel like Todd is still in our lives in a really organic way. And as for finding that special adult someone to share her life with, well Susie certainly hasn't ruled it out. Yeah so I'm really optimistic about love. I think um, I'm realistic that at the moment I have a three and a half year old who is a handful um, and I'm really protective of our time, so I think it will be a pretty incredible person at this point in my life who um, has the patience to date me because I'm not overly available at the moment and I'm okay with that. And I think ultimately what I want for me and what I want for him is to have somebody back in my life and I want him to have some, you know, a, a male person in his life that he can look up to and, and go to for anything he doesn't want to come to me, which should be nothing. Um, so, yeah, I like, I've never been afraid of ending up alone. I just don't think that's going to be my journey. In what can only be described as one of the most traumatic experiences anyone can ever experience, 10 years after Todd's death, Susie's reflection on what helped her through is filled with wisdom and vulnerability. The biggest thing is time and people I know people say it every time somebody dies they're like only time heals it's so true though and I think I only realized that when I had when I realized that I had transitioned from feeling really sad about Todd to feeling really grateful for Todd and the only thing that enabled that transition was time at this point in my life I've reconciled in my head that Todd was always going to pass away at 36 if that was always going to be the case then the way it happened was the way I'm, 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 I'm okay with the way it happened because I don't think that there would have been any suffering. 
Yeah, I mean, no doubt I'm damaged, no doubt. I'm not saying that I've come out here and it's 10 years down the track and I've processed it and I'm, you know, healthy and I'm moving forwards. I'm absolutely damaged by his passing and I will forever be changed by it. You know, there's definitely a wall up that probably wasn't there before, but I just try to be really honest with that. I don't blame that on Todd. I don't blame that on those circumstances and that's hard when every day feels like it lasts an eternity but it's time and one day you'll look back and you'll think, I'm a, like, I'm a bit of a ledge, like I've come through this and, you know, and it's empowering because if I can deal with that and I can survive that and I can have a he- like a healthy positive outlook on life, then I feel like there's not much that I can't deal with now. So, you know, I guess that's the silver lining. <laughs> Everyone Has an Ex is written and narrated by me, Georgia Love, produced by Linda Scott and edited by Matt Sofo. We will be back for season two, so if you've got a story for us, send it to us at everyonehasanex at mintymedia.com.au. That's M-I-N-T-Y media.com.au. And follow us on Instagram at, at everyonehasanex. Thank you for listening. If you've loved season one, don't forget to subscribe, give us five stars and leave us some feedback. I promise we read every single one.